0: I hope that it's one of your favorites. Here he is. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Joe Stafford. Joe Stafford. Matthews goes
1: up again and makes a huge catch. Oh, look at Chris Matt! Hey, hey, MVP. What's my dog Stafford looking like out there, man? Stafford, he he definitely got a swag about it. Downfield as Matthews reaches out, makes the catch. Oh, reach reached up court.
0: It is Matthews for a touchdown, Chris Matthews. We're watching a star be born.
1: That guy right now is your MVP. What up, Joe? It's Willie McGinnis, three time Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots. And I know about the Stafford and Matthews podcast and how hard you grind and work, and you're seeing the fruits of your labor.
2: And welcome back to Stafford and Matthews, episode 2 of the new season. As always, your hosts, Joe Stafford and Chris Matthews, former Seahawks and Raven and star of Super Bowl Forty Nine. Today we got a real special guest on for you guys. So we haven't had a guest in a while, first guest of the season so far. And I could not be pleased more to introduce to you the coolest cat of the 1980s, quarterback of the 1985 <laughs> Super Bowl champion, Chicago Bears. Uh, Pete Roselle is basically best friend in the world, none other than Jim McMahon himself. Jim, how are we doing?
0: Hey, good morning, guys.
2: Doing well. I'm glad to hear it. Legend this is, Yeah, legend. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Legend. Basically a linebacker playing quarterback. That's what that was <laughs> always always the thing for you, right? Diving head first, never sliding. we are not a big baseball slide guy, and you basically play with this unbelievable tenacity, uh, and aggressiveness, something you don't see in quarterbacks nowadays. No, um, really. You really don't, obviously, I mean, they're all soft anyway, you know that, Jim, but it's it's been unbelievable to have this experience with you, so we thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's yeah so We appreciate that. All right, we're in the uh, second episode of the season so far, did our first week, our power rankings and stuff, but we're going to focus on you this week because you're our special guest. So my first question, just right off the bat, how the hell did a guy like you play at BYU? You are the mm-hmm. furthest guy from a BYU prototypical guy I've ever seen in my life, so take me through that whole process.
0: Well, I I grew up in California, in San Jose, California, back in the, I think I moved there in 1961 from New mm-hmm. Jersey. I was born in Jersey City. Uh, my dad's job moved him out to California. That's where I grew up. I grew up with the brothers of the Mexicans. You know, I'd, I'd never even heard of a Mormon before. And then <laughs> my dad's job moved him to Utah my junior year in high school. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I was starting as a sophomore in California, so I was very mm-hmm. reluctant to have to go to Utah uh, my older brother was, was able to stay in California, finish his senior year. But since I had two years to go uh, and I had a, little bit of, of had, a, had a police record, I needed to get out of the state. So, um, yeah, I went to Utah and then uh, played my last two years of high school ball there. I got recruited. All I wanted to do was play baseball. Uh, baseball was my first love. Mm. Still, still love the game. Uh, and so I wanted to go to a college where they said I could play both sports. Hmm. And I went back to Nebraska, I went back to Oklahoma State, a few of the big schools back in that, in the, in the, in that time, and they all said I couldn't play both sports. So I said, I'm not coming here then. And so the only two that said I could play both sports was BYU and Nevada, Las Vegas. And uh, Vegas ha- happened to be my last recruiting trip, hmm. and I had a really good time. Uh, I came home and said, Pops, I'm going to Vegas <laughs> and he said, "No, no, you're not." He said, "It's not a big enough school." I think he was worried about me going on to the next level. And I said, mm-hmm. I, "I'm not worried about getting to the next level. I just want to have <laughs> some fun in college, like everybody else does, you know." Uh, but because uh, I, I, I got offered a good deal to go to Vegas, you know, house, mm-hmm. car, money, easy job at a casino. Hell, I, mm-hmm. who knows? i could have been Steve Wynn.
1: Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. Could have and, been somebody uh, by, out there.
0: But, but my dad put his foot down and said, no, you're not going to Vegas. And that's how I ended up at BYU. So.
1: Well, do you think that it was, uh, it, it was uh, at looking back at it, do you think it was a good choice because you were a t- uh, two-time All-American?
0: Well, I, I mean, everything seems to have worked out. I mean, yeah. uh, other, than, other than getting to play baseball. I did play mm. my freshman year. Uh, I think I played about eight games. But I was playing, uh, I was playing in the outfield at the time and throwing the ball from the outfield and throwing the ball from the pockets, two totally different things. Right. And, uh, you know, and I was starting to have some arm problems. Mm -hmm. And so since football was my scholarship, I just, you know, I had to stick with football. And like you say, things worked out, but I'm sure my body would feel a lot better right now if I played (laughs) baseball.
1: I could relate to that. I could definitely relate to that because I was doing the same thing coming out of high school. I mean, I of junior college as well. I wanted to go somewhere where I could play both. And it ended up picking Kentucky, thinking that it was going to be the, the smartest thing to do. And I ended up having some problems with my well, I mean, with my leg. And I was like, you know what? I probably just need to focus on football. And take this time to relax and get this leg better. So I understand. I, f- I feel you on that part, man. It, it, it's, a, it's a tough decision. But, I mean, looking back at it, we both can say, like, we, we did what we wanted to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, had a, I had a good time. At, you know, either way I was going to go, I was going to have Absolutely. some fun. And, and uh, I was able to have fun for 15 years and, and played for seven different teams and uh, played with a lot that's of great football players, uh, that's a lot amazing. of good coaches, had a lot of shitty coaches. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's just – that's basically everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's the game. That's the game for you right there.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's speaking of which, you did have a lot of fun. And that was pretty much the name of the game for you a lot of the time. You wanted to make sure you enjoyed your Absolutely. experience in the league. And that's a lot of players do, obviously, right? We got to talk about this, right? You go in, you get drafted by Chicago, and George Howell is sitting there, Mike Dicko, And you walk in, pack a dip. Beer in hand, first meeting. You gotta take me through that decision process. Like I gotta, I gotta, like I gotta, I gotta go through in your head. Like you walked into the room, highly touted first round guy, and you walk in like that. Obviously, it makes a statement. It makes a big statement, and I think a lot of your players might have liked it. I think the coaches, you know, obviously knowing Dick might not have. So I want to go through the whole process. Like, how did they react when you actually did that?
0: Well, that whole story is is weird because I sh- I was supposed to go to Baltimore. Baltimore mm-hmm. had the fourth pick that year. <clears throat> and uh, I'd been back to Baltimore two or three times. I was having lunch and dinner with Johnny Unitas at his restaurant there in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was telling me all about the city, how I'm going to love the city, this and that. And, but I had forgotten, I had told my agent, I didn't really want to be in Baltimore, <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't tell me that until draft day. Cause when the draft started, you know, it wasn't like nowadays, everybody's in New York. I was just sitting at home in Utah Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, watching the draft on the, on the television, and when the, the Colts pick came up, Roselle got up and said, and the Colts with the fourth pick take quarterback, so I'm thinking it's going to be me. And he said, "Arch Schleister, Ohio State. And I, mm-hmm. I just kind of was like in shock, going, wow, w- w- what happened? Mm-hmm. And then my attorney had called right away. He goes, what would you think? And I said, well, what happened? He said, you, you told me you didn't want to go to Baltimore, so I, I told him don't to, don't draft you. Cause they'd never sign you because they, mm-hmm. they were having trouble signing their, one of their running backs back then. I think it was Curtis Dickey.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: uh, so they said, don't even bother drafting him. So I had no idea I was going to be in Chicago. So I, I I next get the call from Chicago and <clears throat> they said, Hey, can you come to, come to town? I said, sure. So I get on a plane, you know, I take a three hour flight. Uh, they pick me up. I, I'm in a limousine for an hour. And there's beer mm-hmm. in the limousine. And I just, you know, I've been traveling four hours. It wasn't like I was 18 years old. I was mm-hmm. almost 22. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I, I started having a few on the way there. And then as I'm getting out, I wasn't even thinking. I forgot all about the press, right? Wasn't <laughs> thinking about press. And so there was still a couple beers on the string, so I, I took those with me as I got to the, <laughs> the limousine. And, and all of a sudden the press was woof, right there. And I'm like, all uh, right. Uh, and so, and actually, Mike Dicker was walking into the building right as I was right as I was getting there. And Mike, mm-hmm. this was Mike's first year in Chicago as well, and he just looked at me and he said, "Oh, so you're my first round pick?" And I said, "I guess so." <laughs> and then, then I had to go sit and wait to talk to George Hallis, and uh, I was sitting literally outside of his office for about an hour, just staring at the secretary. And I finally said, "Hey, w- what am I doing here?" Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, we, you know, Mr. Hallis would like to." speak with you. I said, that's fine. Uh, you know, is that going to be happening soon? I said, cause I had a couple of guys, some friends on the bears already, mm-hmm. uh, Kenny Margum, Keith Van Horn, and they mm-hmm. were in town. They wanted to take me out celebrate. And so I wanted to get, get the hell out of that office. Right. <laughs> and so she goes, well, he's taking a nap. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, wake his, wake him up. I said, I got yeah. to do. And so, you know, she goes in there and gets him up and I go, I walk in and he's before, hello, anything. He tells me, he says, well, you're too short. Uh, you have a bad eye, your arm is suspect. And, uh, there's something wrong with your knee too. He goes, you should go to Canada. That's the first thing out of his mouth to me. And I said, well, why did you draft me old man? I said, Thank you. I was in your scouting department, you know, and, and he already had a contract. He had a mm-hmm. contract for me, right? I mean, I just got drafted four hours before. And, mm-hmm. uh, he slides it over to me and I, I just saw the first number and I just, and, and this is right when the USFL was coming in. Mm-hmm. You remember the USFL league?
1: Yeah, I remember.
0: And so I, I had a meeting with George Allen who was coaching the Chicago team of the USFL back then, mm-hmm. the old Redskin coach or whatever their name is now, who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, so I knew I had a meeting with him. And so I walked, I, I looked at the contract, I rolled it up, I threw it at him. I said, I might sign it that." I walked out. That's my first meeting with old Papa Bear Hallis. Wow. And so a couple of days later, I go meet with George Allen. He offers me a great contract. And I said, George, you put this in writing and I will play for you. But I said, I got two weeks to make a decision. You know, at that, at that for some reason that year, they said, if the rookies don't sign by July 15th, they can't play. Mm-hmm. That's when I knew the NFL was full of shit because Marcus Allen and, and I think it was Darren Nelson both signed after July mm-hmm. 15th and they were able to play that year. And so, um, they're moved to so go. George never came back to me, so I ended up having to sign that wrinkled up paper I threw at <laughs> Hallis. That, that was what I played for. The first Wait, so
1: House. can I can I ask a question? What exactly happened after you threw the piece of paper in his face? Like, how did he react to that situation?
0: I, I just got up, threw it, and walked out. I don't even <laughs> know. He didn't say nothing after that. <laughs>
1: Hey, hey listen, that's what a first you know, round to needs to do, other I guess. with
0: George You know, George passed away uh the following year, so I didn't have to oh, deal that's
1: with unfortunate. Him much I that's didn't have to deal with him
0: much after that first meeting. But
2: uh yeah, he was uh he was a crotchety old guy.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's, also, that's,
2: one of the Bears legends of all time, obviously, George Halas, you know, yes. being such a founding presence in that Bears locker room and, and obviously being, you know, the guy to institutionalize what Chicago football was, right? It became a brand. Bears football became a brand under him. And that's almost that's so invaluable in this day and age, right? When you can build a team, especially where they are in the whole now. league. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and look what they're at now, right, too, right? The Chicago Bears currently... Uh, are in the dumpster fire of the NFL, right? They're a bottom five team, um, not going anywhere anytime soon, you know, according to me. You know, I have different thoughts. I don't know how you feel but Justin Fields. We can get into that later. Uh, I knew you weren't a big Mitch Trubisky guy. But obviously, you know, George How is is, you know, being who he was. And you having the balls to do that really made, I'm sure, everyone around you uh, respect you a little bit more. Or maybe the other way around, depending on uh, their point of view, right? So, uh, that's an, I've actually heard that story before. I have not heard that story before, and that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Never. Good, so, I appreciate that. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. Um, okay, so, you get in the league. You obviously have a phenomenal team, you know, starting to build around you, right? Leading up to that 85 season probably the greatest defense of all time right Chris might say the 13 Seahawks you know being affiliated with them um but you know the 85 Bears being who they were epitomized hard nose tough nose defense you don't see the players like that anymore in the NFL um you know being a part of that team they'd I'm sure you fine. have I mean you know, obviously yeah the game's changed get, so much none of
0: them would last through the game because they, they were taking people out I mean that, that, that was the game back then
2: I believe it well, and, yeah, and honestly, you know, I'm in the of the opinion that way football should be played. It's you know, it's it's me- it's built for grown men. It's built not to play flag football. You're supposed to hit people and you're supposed to love it too. And um, you know the way is trending, I'm not really agreeing with. You're you know, obviously they're focusing on the concussion protocol stuff. I understand that is very important um, and very um, you know necessary. Um, but I mean, I I understand. I think a lot of athletes should understand it's football and there's a reason why you play it the way you do. Um, and so I respect that about the 85 Bears, nonetheless. Um, going into 85, you know. Walter Payton, top three running back of all time. I think it's pretty unanimous, right? One of the best to ever do it. Um, And, you know, you get through that 85 season, you're playing phenomenal football. You get to the Super Bowl um, against my New England Patriots, and you beat the brakes off them beat the brakes off them, not even close. But Walter Payton, as we all know, didn't have his most successful game as a pro. Right um, you know, the fridge score touchdown before Walter Payton did in that Super Bowl. So mm-hmm. um my question I guess is, you know, being in that locker room, being in that environment, obviously you were ecstatic to win that Super Bowl. Obviously you had the whole commercial going on. It was it was a great vibe for that team. But what were your what were your impressions of what Walter Payton was going through at that time, you know, being as competitive as he was and not being able to make an impact on that game?
0: I didn't really realize how, how much he was upset about not scoring in that game for, for a mm-hmm. year or two. And, uh, you know, he never mentioned anything to me about it. He talked to Matt Suey. I've, I've since talked to Matt and, and his son, Jared, about it. And he was really, really hurt. And I, and I kept asking why. You know, why was he so upset? And I said, you know, New England's whole focus that week was we stopped Walter Payton, we win. Right, And they did a good job of that. You know, Walter carried the ball, I think, 27 times in the game. Mm-hmm. And he carried it down by the goal line. But, you know, the focus was to stop Walter. And so I think he could have carried the ball 100 times in that game and not gotten it. And that's just my opinion because that's that's the focus that they had on him. That's why everybody else was so successful in that game because everybody was so open because of Walter. Uh, I, I point to the first play of the second half. We're backed up on our four-yard line. And, uh, we run a play action pass, wasn't even a good fake. And there's six guys chasing Walter hmm. and Willie's running up the middle of the field by himself. And, uh, I said, that's, that just shows, you know, the kind of influence that he had on that game, you know, whether or not he scored, who cares? It was a blowout. It was, uh, I would have rather thrown two or three touchdowns and than, than run them in the, the two mm-hmm. that I got, in. uh, you know, but, uh, we won the game. We, we did what we were, you know, we we were planning to do all year long. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he should. Have, you know, that's his own opinion or his own feelings. But uh, he was a bigger part of that game by not scoring, uh, because he he opened up everything for everybody else.
1: It makes sense. It makes sense. I see the reason why I can relate to that story is because I was one of the guys who benefited. Uh, when the defense focused solely on one person, again with New England, they were focusing on Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> Do not let Marshawn Lynch run, so everything else was pretty much open for all the wide receivers. And I was the one that was able to benefit from that situation. So I understand what you're saying, and 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 at the end of the day, it's all a team thing. Like if as long as we all win and come together. That's right. that's what makes everything right. I always I always tell people, like, no matter if it was a win, lose, or draw, like we lost. I don't care about my stats. I don't care about none of that. We lost the game, and that's a L on all of our records. Right. So I I feel what you're saying, but th- this is a question that I wanted that I really want to know. Okay. Um, when was the time in that 85 year, I mean that 85 season, did you feel like like, okay, we're together and we're all on the same accord, right? Like, I feel like that's a huge thing to, like, uh, highlight there because I feel like for us, the Seahawks, back in 2020, what was that, 2014, when we went out there and I feel like the day that we all came together was the day before the Green Bay game. And then we had whatever, you know, all that uh. You know everything that happened leading up to that point, but that the day before that game, we all sat down and literally came together and was like, "We need this." And practice showed it, and then the game showed it, and it was history from there. So when did that happen for you guys?
0: Well, that was that really started happening basically in the latter part of '83. You know, we sucked in '82. I'm glad that we had a strike in '82. We only had to play nine games. <laughs> we were terrible. Uh, but in '83, I think we won six of the last eight games, and we started gelling as as a team. You know, mm-hmm. All anybody talked about is Chicago the defense, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, which are they were a hell of a defense. But you can't win on one side of the ball. You got to right. have you got to have all phases of your game working to, in order to win. And so. You know, they started realizing, hey, you know, the offense is, they're doing something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, we're controlling the football. You know, we ran the ball all the time. We controlled the clock. Mm-hmm. We scored the most points in the, in the NFC. I mean, uh, you know, we started gelling. And then in 84, you know, we had a chance to win in 84. We, we lost mm-hmm. the NFC championship game in 84. Uh, so we knew we were going to be good in 85. And then we came out, We you know, opening game, we're playing Tampa Bay. And the Tampa was notoriously bad back then. Mm-hmm. and they got us down 14 points at halftime in the opening game of the season that we're supposed to be kicking everybody's ass. And uh, we ended up coming back offensively. We did well in the second half, and, you know, we rolled over them. Uh, we had New England in the second game of the season, and mm-hmm. then, um, we beat them. And then the, the big game was the, it was a Thursday night game against Minnesota, and mm-hmm. we were both 2-0. and They're in our division, big game. You know, even though it's early in the season, that's a big game in your standings. Mm-hmm. and uh I think that was a turning point you know that that let, let everybody know hey the offense is, you know we can hold our own that's when I came in in the second half after bugging the hell out of Dicka to mm-hmm. let me in the game and uh you know we came back and won that game and then pretty much rolled over everybody until you know Monday night in Miami you know 12 you know week 12
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh and that was that was another game that uh I wasn't able to play, he didn't let me play because I missed one game of practice. One day of practice the previous week, I had sprained my ankle a little bit, and so I missed Wednesday practice. And uh, he uh, had the rule where if you don't, if you you don't practice, you don't play. No, but that rule no. only applied to me. <laughs> <laughs> defensive guys hardly really ever practice. Buddy, right, right. I, I run the defense. You, you guys are playing. No way, no way. <laughs> So I, I didn't play in that game for until about six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. We're down 14. So I, I really didn't. Uh, I was kind of hoping to, to play Miami in, in the Super Bowl. That was mm-hmm. I wanted to get a shot at, at those guys and play the whole game. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just didn't work out that way. I mean, they got beat as well at home. So New England deserved to get there. They, they won three road games to get there. And, and uh, <laughs> just unfortunate what happened to them in the Super Bowl.
2: You know, I, I love, and I respect you a lot, Jim. I, I, I still have a whole grudge against you for that. I wasn't born, but you personally have impacted every single member of my family. I'm Boston, born and bred. You know, my entire family was in Dorchester and Southie. You ruined my entire family's year that year, just so you know.
0: Yeah, I don't have many friends up that, that Boston area. <laughs> uh, Mike Ruzioni. Mike Ruzioni lives in Boston. He's a, he's a buddy of mine. Okay. He might not say, he might not say it to, to a, somebody on the street, but he's a friend of mine.
2: <laughs> that's good to hear that's awesome alright so you know you mentioned dikka and obviously there's been a lot of media coverage you know being back to the 80s and how you guys clashed a lot right um and I think the reason for that is, obviously, you guys are both big personalities, right, but in different ways, right? You were definitely one of those guys that want to do their own thing. You wanted to enjoy yourself. You wanted to, you know, express yourself, have your own brand, and, and kind of do your thing while also focusing on football, right? And then Dica, um, you know, Iron Mike being more of the authoritarian, trying to control everything. Uh, obviously, that those two personalities are going to clash at some point, Um And you also mentioned Buddy Ryan, too, you know, the captain of that defense, um, you know, orchestrating the 46 defense back in 85. Um, You know, you played for him a couple years later in Philly, I believe. Um, The the question I guess that I can ask is, it's a two-parter. One, was there any chance you and Dick were going to get along from the jump point? I mean, you mentioned when uh, when you came out of the limo there, and he said, you're my first-round quarterback, that first impression. And also, the second part of that is, you must have enjoyed playing for Buddy Ryan a hell of a lot more than you did for Mike Dick at that, right?
0: Well, with Mike, it was, uh, you know, I think he wanted me to play early in my career and I wanted to play as well. It wasn't like I was sitting behind a couple of hall of famers you know, I had mm-hmm. Bob, Bob Avellini and, uh, Vince Evans were the two guys, veterans that were here at the time. And, um, uh, you know, so I think we got along early, uh, pretty well, you know, I wasn't, um, uh, uh, as maybe as outspoken as I, I became, because mm-hmm. you know, I, I was get I was getting frustrated and you know, I just, I just come from a, a school where I got to throw the ball pretty much every play. And now I get to throw it, you know, on third and long usually. <laughs> and and uh, I was just very frustrated and things were, were not working properly. I remember my first start, uh, I think it was against the lions and, you know, we were notorious back then third and long, we're going to run sweep with Walter. didn't Didn't matter how long. We're going to run sweep, right? So, sure enough, it's third and long, and I get up to line of scrimmage. I call the sweep. I get up there. I mean, you can hear the defensive guys. Hey, watch the sweep! Watch the sweep! And there's nine guys from the center waiting for the sweep on the other side. And so, um, in our in our uh, our numbering system was back asswards, too, mm-hmm. which you know from from little league on up to the, when I got to the pros, even numbers are to the right. Right. Right.
1: It's universal. Yeah,
0: but in Chicago it was different because Vicka had just—he had just come from uh, Dallas, Mm -hmm. and Tom Landry was a defensive guy. So as he looked at it, his even was over there to the right. So
1: oh, from the opposite. Now, so
0: now I'm I'm trying to—I'm up on the line of scrimmage, trying to think of the damn number to just run just a weak side off tackle play because I got Mm -hmm. three on two over here, Mm -hmm. and. It just popped into my head. 34 was the, was a, was the number for the fullback to the off tackle to the left. <laughs> and my left guard, nine year veteran, it wasn't in the game plan that week for some stupid reason, but it's a play you run a thousand times, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows the play. And my left guard looked up at me and said, 34, what the hell's 34? <laughs> and I said, Bootsy, we're running right there, blocking that. <laughs> and, and sure enough, was, I think it was third and seven. Suey so got nine yards for a first down. Oh, wow. Uh, so we're getting. We're getting back to the huddle and, and I, my guard grabs me and he says, hey, youngster, you got any more surprises for me today? And I mm-hmm. said, well, I'm not running into a brick wall. Keep your ears open. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Walter grabbed me before I got back in the huddle. The only thing he ever said to me on the field in the six years I played with, him, he says, keep doing what you're doing because I don't mm-hmm. want to run into that either. Mm. I, I, I don't think they ever changed the play before I got there. It was just – I don't know how that guy lasted six years prior to me getting there. <laughs> he was – I mean, you'd see him uh, – I'd, I'd hand him the ball, and he'd make a 30-yard run that only gained two yards. I mean, he'd be bouncing off guys sideline to sideline. Yeah. You know, yeah. He just did not like to be tackled. And it was amazing that he he missed one game in 13 years from all the beating that he took. That, that's the most amazing stat to me. That's
1: impressive. You know, that is impressive. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Jim. Um in 1990 you ended up with an injury and then the following year, 1991, you end up getting NFL comeback player of the year. Can we talk about that 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 uh that time uh how uh if if it was hard for you, easy? Or whatever it was. I mean, you're you're a legend, so I don't I can't I can't I don't know which way to go with it. I just want to hear the story of of this great year.
0: Well, I went to uh, I went to the Chargers in 89. I got traded mm-hmm. to the Chargers in 89. Then I then Buddy um Buddy Ryan uh, called me in 1990. He said, "Hey, mm-hmm. I need you." So uh Buddy Buddy and I always got along for some reason. He hated offensive people. Uh, but for some reason he he liked me and I think it was because I had an old coach in college that he coached with somewhere previously and he had called him and said, Hey, this kid can play. So, mm-hmm. but he always treated me pretty well. But, uh, 1990, I go to the Eagles, Randall Cunningham's a quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. I think we got to the playoffs. Yeah, we got to the playoffs in 90, didn't do well. Uh, 91, um, opening game was against green Bay Packers mm-hmm. and Randall went down on the first quarter, hurt his knee. He was out for the season. So I, I ended up playing, uh, most of the year, I think I played 11 games. <laughs> of course I got hurt again, but, uh, and that's, that's the only other defense that I've seen, uh, that rivaled the bears in my opinion, uh, really the 91 Eagles. He had, he had Reggie White, Jerome Brown, Clyde Simmons, Seth Joyner, Eric Allen. I mean, you, you, go down the list. I mean, these guys were, these guys were good.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We finished 10 and six that year. We didn't go to the playoffs. Mm. No, it was a, uh, it was a tough year, but I, I, I got comeback player of the year for, you know, for some reason. I got, I played, like I said, only 11 games. We we're eight and three in those 11. Mm-hmm. We we're two and three in the other five. So, um, uh, Yeah. We had a, we had a good football team. It just, unfortunately, you know, Buddy, Buddy was one of those guys. Oh, actually, Buddy wasn't there in 91, Mm but he got fired in 91. It was Rich Cotite became the head coach. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I told him we, we halfway through the season we were three and five. And I said, man, if we don't win all eight games, we're not going to playoff. Right. No, we win 10. We're in. I said, is, all you have to do is look at the
1: schedule.
0: <laughs> we're in the division with, with, with Washington and New York and they're ahead of us already. And I said we're yeah. not gonna take three teams from the same division to the playoffs. Right. And sure enough, we win seven of eight, go ten and six, we don't go. Mm. Now I can guarantee you there's nobody that wanted to play that defense in the playoffs that
1: year. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely that, not. It look it looked tough. You know, uh just a little caveat, Reggie White is my is my cousin. Like we're we're actually Second cousin's removed. Sec, uh, he's my second cousin removed from my family.
0: Uh, Reggie was a great, great teammate. Had a lot of fun with him. Uh, they used to call us Buck and the preacher. I guess he <laughs> you know who Buck is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Reggie and I, I mean, as religious and everything as Reggie was, we got along mm-hmm. great. I mean, we had a good time together. I got to play with him again in Green Bay. He finally got himself a ring mm-hmm. uh, with the Packers, and uh, it was good to
1: see. It was amazing, amazing yeah.
2: time. Most definitely, yeah. And so, you know, thinking about it now, you beat the Pats twice in the Super Bowl, not just once. Now thinking about it over again, because you ended up backing Brett Favre up that year. Um, wow, well, that that's really what I told most. Brett at
0: the at the start of uh, the '96 season because we had just lost the NFC Championship game the year before, mm-hmm. and I said, "Dude, this is kind of working out like it did in Chicago." He said, "Back in '84, we lost the NFC Championship, came back and won it." I said. I said, look, the Super Bowl's in New Orleans again, and I said it's mm. on the same day mm. that it was 11 years ago. And who, you know, who would have believed that we're going to play the same team as well? That was, right. Uh, that was as deja vu as it gets.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a great question too. Yeah. Football so, gods. I mean, football, guys, really. I mean, like, football is the greatest reality show on the planet. I mean, I think that's a very big consensus when you're in the yeah, circle absolutely. of the NFL, right? You can never write this stuff up. It's impossible to. So I guess my next question is, right, you've been a part of some really special teams, two Super Bowl champion teams. You've been all around the league, seven different teams, like you mentioned. you played with guys like, you know, Antonio Freeman, Willie Galt. The list goes on and on with some of the most talented receivers of those decades. Absolutely. If you had to pick one, the best receiver you got to throw to during your career, who would it be?
1: Oh yeah, that's a good question.
2: Yeah, that's a
0: tough one. I always get that. I I get asked that, and I tell them the same thing every time. Roy Green.
2: Ooh.
0: you remember Roy Green? He was the Jetstream. He played for the Cardinals for years and years. No fastest joke. Guy, fastest guy in the NFL for for a while. Yeah. Uh, Roy came to um, Philadelphia in ninety one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his last his last stop. I mean, he couldn't outrun me by then. <laughs> and, uh, but he was smart i mean he he was there for i think two or three days practice mm. and he we, he played the game uh i think we played pittsburgh i think he caught 10 balls for over 100 yards mm. uh, he was just you know he's just a professional he, he knew what he was doing he knew how to get open he knew he couldn't run anymore but he knew how to get open he, he was he was always where he was supposed to be and uh, those are the kind of guys you need you have to you got to have a guy that you can depend on knowing where he's going to be at all times. And that right. Was,
1: right. right. And like a, like a war type of, type of, of player. Well.
0: Willie, Willie was one of the, another fastest guy I've ever seen. You know, he, mm-hmm. you know, even when you're, you're watching film, everybody's at one speed. Willie was always faster, even in the film. It was kind hmm. of crazy. Uh, Dennis McKinnon was a great receiver for me in Chicago. Uh, in, in Philly, I had Freddie Barnett and Calvin Williams, They're two, two good receivers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's guys, but Roy was, he was, like I say, he was a professional and he just, he, he, he was always open.
1: Man, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I love, I love hearing stories about back in the day and, and, and how you guys basically transcended the game, honestly. Um, and you were honestly one of the ones that <laughs> spearheaded the whole movement. So I love, I love all the stories that you've been giving us, man. It's, it's been a pleasure for me just just listening to you and, and soaking up your knowledge, man. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much, man. And I would love to catch a ball from you. If you ever still can throw the ball a little bit, I would love to catch a ball from you.
0: Uh, nah, hell, I can't even throw my golf club anymore.
2: This arm, <laughs> this arm don't work too well. well to actually... The rest of this body just falling apart. Seems like. You know what? That's a good question, though, Chris. You mentioned that. All right. We'll do a flashback. 1985. First game of the year. Chris gets teleported back from 2014. Six, five, <laughs> 230, runs a four five forty. How many touchdowns are you throwing to Chris in that season?
0: Ooh. Well, I think the the most I ever had in the in my career was fifteen in a season. So well, like I said, we didn't get to throw it much.
1: Yeah. So, I would have took. I would have taken a couple of Chicago, them though.
0: You might have
2: caught about ten balls the whole year.
1: <laughs> yeah that, that sounds that sounds like my Seahawks years.
2: <laughs> That's unbelievable. So actually, yeah. I saw. So Jimmy, really making your media rounds lately? I saw you on a podcast actually with uh, Jeremy Piven, who played Ari Golan on Entourage. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, Entourage was my favorite shows of all time. Uh, Absolutely. One of the one of the best Kit Back and Watch shows uh, Absolutely. ever. Absolutely. Uh, I I gotta ask, how was the interview with like the Ari goal? Like like was he in character? Like how did he conduct that? Because like it was it was a great show. I love watching you on it, but I just I don't know if I could sit there and take him seriously as the person, <laughs> not as the actor. You know what I'm trying to say? He's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a
0: typical. she's typical Chicago. You know, yeah. he's a Chicago guy. And
2: that's <laughs> that's
0: how he he did the interview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was it was nice. Yeah, I've, I've got another one coming up here in about. 15 minutes. So, yeah, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately when I've, when I've got the time to do, doing a lot of traveling as well. So, uh, yeah, I've just launched a, uh, we launched our cannabis brand uh, a couple of years ago. Myself, Kyle Turley, Evan Britton, a couple of ex-ball mm-hmm. players. Our company's called Revenant. Uh, we just launched here in Arizona uh, last month. We're looking to move into uh, the other states that are legal. So that's what I'm doing now. Just, uh, you know, just enjoying life. Got uh, five grandkids, one on the way, so those always keep oh, you busy. Congrats!
1: congrats.
0: Uh, yeah, and other than that, just rehabbing this foot, man. I've, it's been ten months so far, still not walking, and it's uh, it's the worst surgery I've had of all twenty-two surgeries. This is the mm. worst one. Never had a, an infection before, so but they saved my foot, but now it just doesn't work right.
1: Oh man! Well, well hopefully, we hope hopefully you get everything worse better. So works we, better. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. coming
0: around guys. It's coming around. I wish uh, you guys luck in your podcast and uh, keep up the good work boys.
2: I appreciate Absolutely. it. Jim. Thank you. I got, I got one last question for you. It can be quick, whatever you want to do. Cause I know you got to go in a couple minutes. You played in the eighties. You played one of the most violent eras of football. You didn't slide a lot, but give me the one guy you would slide for to avoid getting smacked around with. <laughs> Who were you scared of in the 1980s that you wanted to avoid at all costs?
0: Uh, well, you're not afraid of anybody, but you don't want to get hit by certain people. Uh, Wilbur Marshall was the guy that, uh, I didn't want to get hit by
1: Wilbur. I Marshall.
0: played with Wilbur in Chicago. Uh, one hell of a football player, um, uh, could run. I mean, before he broke into our starting lineup in Chicago, he used to be the outside cover guy on the punt team. So he'd get out there wide. He'd have two DBs on him. He'd just run right through those two and his and he ran like a 4-4. And he really? Just, he would just light up people. And he had a real low center of gravity, too. So he, he popped me pretty good. Uh, when I was with uh, Philadelphia, he was with the Redskins, or mm. Washington team. Uh, it was a Monday night game. I remember I I dropped back, and our right tackle was awful. So he just whipped, basically, Charles Mann. And Charles was right here in my face. So I kind of pushed up, tried to push up into the pocket, and my knee just snap just something snapped oh, my Lord. knee, and so i'm now i'm trying to run It's third down i'm trying to run and wilbur's eyeballing me and i'm trying to get to those sticks on the sideline and uh he lit me up and then he goes mac you okay i said yeah i'm okay but my knee's gone i think
1: oh <laughs> but, uh,
0: yeah he, he got me he got me pretty good that day but my knee was already gone at that point but yeah wilbur was wilbur was the kind of guy if you look go back and look at some of the uh the old Chicago found, he's, he's hit those quarterbacks like, some of them didn't, some of them never played again. Really? Yeah, I believe it.
1: Especially when they, especially back in those days, boy, them hits had to really hurt.
0: Well, yeah, because some of that AstroTurf is really hard and bad.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that.
2: All right. Well, Jim, we appreciate all your time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Stafford Matthews wrapping up here with Jim McMahon. We appreciate all your time and uh, hope that foot gets better. All right, guys. You have a good day. All right, man. You too. You too.